Brethren, it's good to be with you this morning. And I want to bring to bear this morning something that we talked about this last Lord's Day evening in our new members class. <clears throat> we talked about the primitive church, the early church in Jerusalem. And we talked about the beauty of that church and the manner in which there was this precious and wonderful devotion to Christ that was so, so evident. We read in Acts chapter 2 how it is that on the day of Pentecost, as the Apostle Paul was preaching, we hear and, and read about the fact that there were some 3,000 souls who were redeemed by the grace and mercy of God. And we know and see that these were indeed redeemed people who were indwelt by the Holy Spirit because of their conduct. You see this devotion to Christ as expressed in verse 20, 42 of chapter 2 where it says that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Again, this is a beautiful and simple Christ-centered assembly of God's people who heralded the priorities of God in these things. Luke explains to us in the description of these early believers that they had affections that were clearly brought about by the work of the Spirit. They had a deep reverence for God and a great joy in him. They had their meals together showing and revealing their willingness to serve one another in Christ, and so they shared with others according to their needs, and they also served with, as Luke says, with gladness and with sincerity of heart. In other words, not under compulsion or doing things because they have to. And then it says, and this is crucial, it says that the Lord was adding to their number those who were being saved again. Individuals who were truly redeemed of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, and giving evidence to that work of the Spirit within them in view of these priorities. In a sense, what we're looking at when we look at Acts chapter 2 is we are looking at a field of pure wheat whereby the children of God were deeply planted by the work of God and they were demonstrating godly priorities that we ourselves ought to consider What's remarkable about Acts chapter 2 is that you move from that primitive church in Jerusalem and in time you look at what happened to the churches that were then planted later on and you see that there, were, there was the corruption of false teaching that was embedded in many of the churches later in time. And so we talked about this last time. And we talked about how it is that at Colossae they were, what, they were being take, taken captive by empty philosophy, the philosophies of men. At Philippi, Paul had to warn the church there of the dogs, the evil workers, and the false circumcision. At Galatia, they were mutilating the gospel, whereby Paul was saying that the gospel that they were upholding and heralding by the Judaizers was not actually the gospel. Jude had to confront the wolves who had crept in unnoticed into the church. In the seven epistles in the book of Revelation, we see warnings again and again and again given to those churches in view of the false doctrines that were being tolerated and the impiety that was being promoted in some of the churches. 
And we've already talked about Corinth, how it is that they had a great number of problems. They were abusing the spiritual gifts, engaging in spiritual compromise, and tolerating false doctrine. But we should not be surprised by any of this. Jesus himself taught in the parable of the wheat and the tares that while you have the planting of the true and pure wheat of God's people in the true church, you also have the enemy introducing the tares in their midst, thereby corrupting the purity of the fellowship. This is not new, and it's not a surprise. And Satan has done this for generations in his efforts to infiltrate the body of Christ in order to diminish and destroy her gospel testimony among the nations. Brethren, this morning in this final message dealing with the question of what it means to be a member of a church, I wanted to bring to you this simple yet profound prescription that is given by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And I would ask that you would, if you would like to turn to that chapter, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 4, but we'll be focusing principally on verses 2 and 3 in our study this morning. Consider what the Apostle Paul teaches the Corinthian church in these verses. He says in verse 1, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin." But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, he says you bear this kalos beautifully or bears the idea of someone who receives something with gladness or a spirit of acceptance. False doctrines were things that they, instead of refuting them, they were embracing them and they should not have been doing this. And Paul, therefore, had a great concern for them. But notice in verses 2 and 3 that Paul begins with this remarkable language the language, employing the language of marriage or marital fidelity. Because he says, out of his great concern for their divergence away from the narrow pathway that Christ has prescribed for the church, he says, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband. And this is going to be our first point of analysis. I want us to think about the beauty and the wonder and the importance of that language. Because it helps us to understand that as a church, we need to think about, and this is our first point of analysis, we need to think about what the nature of our devotion to Christ is. It is a devotion that is rooted in this concept of marital fidelity. Marital fidelity. What is the design of marriage? Well, the design of marriage is that the husband and wife 
are to be devoted to one another and that no one else should stand in the way of that fidelity and devotion. Brethren, that's our calling as the body of Christ. We're called to be the bride of Christ and have a singular devotion and fidelity to him. It's a beautiful and remarkable calling, and it's one that we really need to understand clearly in order for us to comprehend what our calling is as a church. Then he speaks of the simplicity, and these are the second and third points. He speaks of the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ that we should have. He says, but I am afraid lest as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And so we're going to talk about what that even means. What, it mean, what does it mean to have a simple devotion to Christ? And what does it mean to have a pure devotion to Christ? Both of those terms kind of overlap in their connotation. But I want us to think about what they delineate ultimately when we talk about this notion of our having a devotion to Christ. But let's begin in verse 2 and talk about this marital fidelity that we are to have with respect to the bridegroom of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Paul says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Verse 2, for I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. You know what's remarkable? When you read this chapter, and we're just jumping in the middle of this book and looking at the 11th chapter, you have to keep in mind the fact that Paul has been dealing with a great number of people in the church who were not receiving his instructions as an apostle, and they were many of them were slandering him and refusing, really, ultimately, his apostolic authority. In fact, in the prior chapter, uh, as you'll recall, there were some who were saying that he was operating in the flesh, warring in the flesh, but he reminds them of the fact that the weapons that we have are not fleshly, but they are spiritual, and they're designed for the destruction of fortresses. Then he says this, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Remember, we refer to this text beforehand, and he uses the word that literally means tearing a, a building down. It's a word that really is talking about taking a wrecking ball to a building. And he says, yeah, that's what we're doing. We're not here to destroy you, but we are here. I, my ministry is to destroy everything that is raised up against the knowledge and wisdom of God. That is my calling. In a sense, he's saying, don't take it personally, because that's my duty to do just that. And why was he doing that? Because he was committed to this priority of destroying anything that would stand in the way of their relationship with Christ. Empty philosophy, the ideologies of men, man-made religion, all of the things that were creeping into the Corinthian church, Paul was taking a wrecking ball to it because he wanted singular devotion and fidelity to Christ for himself and for the church. What's so heartbreaking about what's taking place in this section of scripture, especially when you think about some of the pushback that Paul was receiving, remember that Paul, when you read Acts chapter 18, and you read about how it is that he ministered in their midst for a year and a half, remember that it was Aquila and Priscilla who had joined him along with Silas and Timothy, 
And we read that Paul was solemnly testifying to the Jews in the synagogues that Jesus was the Christ, and he did this until he met opposition from the Jews. And he had gone through so much persecution up to that point that it became really a fearful moment as he was being persecuted by the Jews. Remember, it was later on in that chapter that Jesus appeared to him in a vision and commanded him, saying, do not be afraid any longer. I take great comfort in the fact that the great apostle Paul struggled with fear. Gives me hope because he was such a bold man. But yes, as a human being, he struggled with this. And had to be told not to be afraid any longer. But then the Lord says, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you for I have many people in this city. And so Luke tells us that Paul remained in the city of Corinth ministering the word of God for another year and a half. But when the persecution of the Jews intensified, he then set on to sail to Ephesus and minister the gospel there. That's the background, that's the context of what we're considering here. But the thing we have to keep in mind is, is that Paul endured all of this in order to increase the devotion of the people of, of God at Corinth to the bridegroom of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't there preaching a personal following. He was not trying to get people to follow him as if it was about him. We know this, and we especially know this because at the beginning of his first epistle to the Corinthians, he actually refuted them and rebuked them for the fact that there were quarrels among them such that some were saying, well, I am of Paul, and others were saying, well, I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and some were saying, I am of Christ, as if Christ were divided. And he doesn't say to the church and say, hey, those of you who are of Paul, you're on my side. Yeah, you're my people. No, he refutes it all and says, we follow Christ, and Christ is not divided. We're to have a singular devotion and commitment to one person, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, this is what he means when he says, I have a godly jealousy for you. Jealousy can be an ugly thing when it's about us but it is godly when it is centered on the Lord himself. And we are called to have that kind of jealousy. In fact, this is the very jealousy that we talked about before when we talked about the fact that God himself is jealous for his glory. We're to share that attitude of jealousy for whom? For him, for his glory. And this is the jealousy of Phineas in, who we read about in Numbers chapter 25 who had the very heart of God's jealousy and slew those who rebelled against the word of God. This is the very essence and nature of Paul's jealousy. He desired that the people at Corinth would be devoted to one person, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what he is saying when he says, I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Brethren, I want to encourage you and exhort you to think more and more about your relationship to the body of Christ in terms of this matter of the language of marriage to Christ. The body of Christ is not about us, 
but it's about our commitment to him. He is to be the focus of everything, and our devotion is to be set upon him alone. In Hosea chapter 2, the Lord describes this desire that he has for singular fidelity to him, where he says in Hosea chapter 2 and verse 16, it says, he says, and it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi, or my husband, and will no longer call me Bailey, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, so that they will be mentioned by their names no more. In that day, I will also make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land and will make them lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion, and I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. That Hebrew word, yada, know, does not just merely mean mental and intellectual knowledge. This is the, the concept of personal and intimate knowledge. It's the same word that is used to speak of Adam having relations or knowing his wife Eve and bearing Cain. It ultimately speaks in this context of this idea of intimate personal relationships. And this is why, brethren, I believe that one of the greatest dangers that we have in the modern church is a failure to uphold the beauty and the distinction of what marriage really is as defined by scripture. Because we have to remember that our marital unions are to be a gospel witness for Christ in view of the church's calling to have singular devotion to Christ. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 24. He says, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Brethren, this is our future. We are joined together with Christ in holy matrimony. He's the bridegroom of the church. And we await that day of the wedding marriage and feast of the Lamb. This is our eternity. That beautiful vision that was given to the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 19 is an explosion of praise in view of the coming marriage of the Lamb. It says, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. 
And it was given to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Brethren, that's our future. That's our eternity, is to be joined together in holy matrimony with the bridegroom of the church. By the way, the adornment of the church principally, of course, is the merit of Christ, his purity and righteousness. But you'll notice in this text in Revelation chapter 19 that the bride has made herself ready and it says that it was given to her. Where do our good works come from? They come not from us, but they are given to us by the grace of God. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. And this speaks to the devotion of the church to Christ. Obedience to Christ is an expression of our fidelity to him. And this is exactly what our Savior calls us to do, is to hear his voice and follow him in obedience. Brethren, again, this is why we need to speak of the church in terms of the language of marriage. We are going to be joined to our bridegroom in heaven and there will be no disillusion, no dissolving of this union. It will go on forever and ever without end and it will be indeed joyous and glorious. This is Paul's jealousy. He was jealous over this matter of Christians having a singular devotion to Christ. We all need to have that jealousy burning in our bosoms constantly as individuals and corporately as the body of Christ. But let's move on into verse 3. Not only does he speak of his godly jealousy for the church in this capacity, but he says in verse 3 the following. He says, but I'm afraid lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. The word simplicity, and this is, going, this is our second point of analysis, what does it mean to have a simple devotion to Christ? Well, the Greek word here, aplates, speaks of the absence of complexity. So it therefore means simplicity, something that is not overly complex. And in a sense, when you think about marriage, there is something wonderfully simple about it. You have a husband and a wife who are joined together. And what is the commitment that that is to be there between them? The one is to be devoted to the other from the husband to the wife, to the wife to the husband, and this is the devotion that God calls them to. For how long? You know, we have the expression many times in wedding ceremonies, till death do us part. You know, that's a biblical expression. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.39, he says, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives. That's a simple concept, isn't it? This is the standard that God has established. Jesus as well helps us to understand the simplicity of the marriage union. He says, what God hath joined together, let no man separate. That's pretty simple. God made it, leave it alone. It's not for you to dissolve that which God has established. 
But we know and understand that we live in a fallen world, and because of sin, complexity enters into these things. This is also why the, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 19, said that because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. The rabbinic schools of Hillel and Shammai each had their own ideas about what was permissible in terms of divorce. Shammai said adultery, a single act of divorce uh, of, of adultery, and it's over. Uh, the school of Hillel was extremely liberal, and if she literally burned the dish, she's gone. She burns a meal and it's over. But Jesus said, what God hath joined together, let no man separate. Brethren, when, I, when we look at this language and we see this calling of the Apostle Paul to have a devotion to Christ that is simple and pure, I would suggest to you that the very model of Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, the model of the primitive church is one that helps us to think about what this simplicity really is. What does devotion to Christ in all of its beautiful simplicity look like? Well, it looks like saved people being gathered together who are continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That's what it looks like. So that's not a very complicated list. Well, that's kind of the point. This is what simplicity of devotion to Christ, in fact, looks like. In fact, that language of continually devoting themselves speaks of the perpetuity of their action. Um, this is the regular, regular nature of their life and conduct. They had this regular engagement of heralding and submitting to the apostles' teaching to fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayer. Last Lord's Day, we talked about the importance of prayer, and we talked about how it is that this is the final component of the Christian's armor. Listen, as the soldiers of Christ, we have nothing, we have no strength apart from our Lord, and so what are we called to do? We're called to cry out to our commander-in-chief and plead with him for grace in order to stand in the face of the opposition in this world of darkness. Prayer is important as well because we're called to support one another and pray for one another and bring each other before the throne of grace in view of our needs each and every day. The breaking of bread is important, and I agree with those who say that that expression points us to the love feasts of the early church, which normally culminated in the Lord's table. Matthew Henry, I think, says it well. He says that they continued in the breaking of bread and celebrating that memorial of their master's death as those who were not ashamed to own their relation to and their dependence upon Christ and him crucified. Every time we come to this table, we are brought back to the basics of who we are and why we're here. We are Christians who have been redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and we bear no merit of our own. He alone is our merit, and so we partake of, our, of this table, and we give glory to him as we do. Fellowship is another primitive devotion of the true church in view of the fact that we're called to engage in the one another's that are prescribed in Scripture. We took some time to talk about some of those one another's. Again, speaking the truth to one another in love, praying for one another, encouraging one another, admonishing one another, 
stimulating one another to love and good deeds, to the extent that we engage in these things, we help each other develop and grow as mature Christians, and we, we therefore help and assist in this process of the church maturing as a whole. And as for the first matter on the list of this simple devotion to Christ, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. Keep in mind that the apostles, as the direct representatives of Jesus Christ, they did not preach a message of themselves. They preached the message of Christ, and they were uniquely called in this capacity in order to give the word of God, the word of Christ, to the early church. And they clung to the apostles' teaching because they were clinging to and following the good shepherd. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And so as the early church was clinging to the teaching of the scriptures, they were ultimately clinging to Christ who gave us the word through the apostles. And by this, they followed the Savior. All of this is a work of the Spirit. All of this is the true evidence of what the Spirit produces in the life of the people of God. I don't care about what kind of bells and whistles a church can claim. If you do not have these basics, you just have a lot of activities going on without the real substance of ministry. And by the way, this is an important consideration. It's an important consideration of every church in every generation. There are many revivals that we hear about, even some in the modern day and throughout history. In the 18th century, we know and have learned about the Great Awakening, and we see that by preachers like, uh, by, like uh, Jonathan Edwards, who preached the gospel, we see that many were brought to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But Edwards even struggled with what was really taking place in the process of the preaching of the word of God. There, were, there was a lot of excitement and fanfare and a lot of activity. There were there, many who came to saving faith in Christ, but there were some where it was questionable. They might have a religious experience and some sort of um, ecstatic uh, emotions, but that didn't necessarily mean that they were redeemed people of God. And if they didn't bear this fruit and evidence that we see like in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, you would have to ask the question, are these people actually redeemed? Edwards struggled with this, and he wrote about this, and he said this, though, that where you have a true church, you do have this commitment to the word of God because, again, the word of God is the means by which we hear the voice of our good shepherd, without which we have nothing. He says this, The spirit that operates in such a manner as to cause in men a greater regard to the holy scriptures and establishes them more in their truth and divinity is certainly the spirit of God. Without scripture... Without our understanding who Christ is and what he did on the cross, this memorial loses its substance through our lack of understanding. Without the scriptures, our fellowship with one another becomes vacuous, vain, and meaningless. Without the word of God, without the truth of Christ, we just become a social club without the word of God. And without the word of God, when it comes to the matter of prayer, You'd have to ask the question, who are we praying to? 
Many men pray. In fact, a great number of individuals throughout the world are religious and they pray daily and constantly. But if they're not seeking the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the great high priest, which we're going to be studying in the book of Hebrews, if he's not the one that we're going to, praying through his intercession to the Father, and the question is, to whom are we praying? Brethren, we need the word of God in order to have any kind of meaningful worship of the true and living God. Look again at verse 3. What's stunning about what is said by Paul in this verse is how easy it is to be drawn away from the simplicity of devotion to Christ. What does he say? He says, but I am afraid lest as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. The fact that he mentions the deception of the woman in Genesis chapter 3 is absolutely important. In a sense, by mentioning Genesis chapter 3, he's basically showing us how deception works and how it is that we can be easily led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Well, what do we learn about the tactics of Satan? Paul says that we're not ignorant of his schemes. Well, we should never be ignorant of his schemes, but if we fail to read the word of God, we might actually suffer from such ignorance. Well, when we go to Genesis chapter 3 and we learn about the craftiness of the devil and the manner in which he deceived the woman, you in, immediately come to verse 1, and what does the devil say to the woman? He says, indeed has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. I don't have the time to go through all the details of this, and it is a very, very lengthy discussion. But initially, just in his question alone, you can see the devil questioning the sufficiency of what God had provided as if to say, well, you know, you have this entire garden, but God's keeping you from something. You can't eat from any tree. Look what he's doing to you. And what's remarkable about this entire section is that the Lord said, from any tree of the garden you may eat, but he only issued one prohibition. And that one prohibition is very clear. It's not complicated. Adam had the ultimate slimline Bible. Eat from any tree of the garden, but there's this one exception in which he says, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, you shall moth to moth, surely die. He uses what's called a cal-infinitive absolute, which I don't care if you remember that. But what that means is, in the Hebrew, that means that he's speaking of the certainty of death. You do this, and it's not maybe you'll die. You will die. Period. Full stop. The woman's recitation of the command has the injection of a word that actually modifies the severity of the warning. To the serpent, the woman said, you shall not eat from it. God said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. Pen to matun. It's not what God said. And what's remarkable about Satan 
about the devil, about the serpent, is that he quotes correctly the commandment of God, but then injects the negative particle. He says, you shall surely not die, lo mot to mot. He gets the command right, he gets the cal infinitive absolute, but he says, no, nah, it's not going to happen. So you go from the command of God to the introduction to possibly dying to the devil saying, no, you're not going to die. One incremental step after the other leading to deception and ultimately sin. I agree with Calvin who said this, in proclaiming the punishment, she, the woman, begins to give way by inserting the adverb pen or perhaps when God has certainly pronounced, ye shall die the death. And then the deception goes on from there. The tree that was not to be used as food, she saw it and thought that it was good for food. And despite the provisions of God, which were sufficient, she saw that in the partaking of this forbidden fruit that there would be the acquisition of knowledge and wisdom that she thought that she needed to have. What do we learn from this? We learn a few things. One thing is, is that Satan is a liar. And he's a master deceiver. He's always been this way and ever will be. When you read through Genesis chapter 3 and you see the entire downward spiral of the whole thing, you have this lesson and reminder of the dangers of incremental compromise. Where you step one little step away from what God has written, and then with that one step away from what God has written, you take another step, and then you take another step, and then you take another step, and then you find yourself completely off the, the narrow pathway of God. You know, in the end, Satan really doesn't have that many tricks in his bag. But he is a master at using and manipulating the word of God. He knows how to draw believers away from this simple devotion to Christ that we're called to have. And he is constantly tempting us to believe and think that God's provisions are somehow deficient that there's something a little bit better out there that we should include to the corpus of revelation that we have in the word of God. Just a little bit of human wisdom that we can blend in to the scriptures. It'll just improve it a little bit. No. Rather than the way that we resist these temptations is to remember and contemplate and consider daily the sufficiency of everything that God has provided the sufficiency of his word, the sufficiency of his presence through the indwelling spirit, the sufficiency of the church which feeds and thrives on God's provided means of grace through prayer, fellowship, the Lord's table, and God's divine revelation. We have all that we need pertaining to life and godliness. And should anyone come up to you and tell you otherwise, you must refuse that. We're called to a simple and pure devotion to Christ. Having considered the simplicity of our devotion to Christ, consider with me now the third point. We're called to have a purity of devotion to Christ. Again, he says, 
I'm afraid, lest as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Here the word purity simply means that which is without defection or corruption. And it is this term that speaks of the nature of the wisdom of God. James says this regarding the wisdom of God. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure. Whatever else you can say about the word of God, know this, God's word is pure. No corruption, no variation, no shifting shadow, no promises that are in there that, that God's going to say, you know what, I made that promise, but sorry, I can't, I can't come through on that thing. That would be corruption. Not only of the word, but corruption of our understanding of the nature of God. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. God's word is pure. You know what's stunning to me is that here we are visiting this text in 2 Corinthians 11, in a sense, this is the culmination of much of what Paul has been teaching the Corinthian church over and over and over and over and over again. And as he moves on in this chapter, he shows the bad fruit of their deception such that they were embracing and receiving false teachers. He says of these false teachers, he says, such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, dis disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. They're going to get what's coming to them. Don't follow them. Don't follow them and don't give them a listening ear. You know, this is something that Paul had to do frequently with many of the churches. I already mentioned the error uh, at Galatia and the manner in which the Judaizers were corrupting the gospel message itself. There he says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be anathema or a curse. He doesn't say, you know, well, there are people who have different opinions about what the gospel is and what it means or you know, there are different versions and understandings of what, what it means that Jesus died on the cross and, and, you know, whether or not he really literally was risen from the dead. No. We need to take the word at its face value and not include anything that is alien to what is revealed in the word and not remove anything from it. But as I said, the very things that Paul is addressing here in 2 Corinthians 11, he had already begun to, begun to deal with in his first epistle to them, where he says to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 20, he says, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of, the, of God, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. What does the world have that it can offer to us as the church? Nothing. Nothing. Well, the only thing it offers to us is corruption. But we need to reject that in our pursuit of the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. 
Impurity in the church often comes when we imagine that we need the world's wisdom or the speculations of men in order to have sufficiency as Christians. You know, this is something that has been on my heart for many years. Back in 2007, I wrote a book called Indeed Has Paul Really Said, which was a critique of N.T. Wright's book, which is called What St. Paul Really Said. In his book, he basically redefined the concept of justification by faith, retooling the meaning of the word justification, and thereby denying that justification, as he says, really has anything to do with the believer's salvation. He denied that justification had anything to do with our salvation. Brethren, justification by faith is the foundation of our redemption. We have no merit, and it is only through faith in Christ that we have the imputed righteousness of Christ, which justifies us before the Almighty. You take that out of the gospel, everything vanishes. I wrote the book because I saw that there was this dangerous habit that we find in the world of academia. Men who sit around in their scholastic assemblies and they engage in speculative discussions about the Bible and yet they do little to delve into the scriptures and discover what the Bible actually has to say. Wright's obfuscation of the doctrine of justification was a principal focus of my book but I also mentioned the fact that N.T. Wright spoke of a friend of his, has spoken of a friend of his by the name of Marcus Borg, a New Testament scholar who authored many books who denied the literal resurrection of Christ. Listen to the words of Marcus Borg here, and I shared this with um, our Wednesday evening uh, fellowship. Borg said this, I have learned that the message of Jesus was not about requirements of what you must do or believe in order to go to heaven. I think the resurrection of Jesus really happened, but I have no idea if it involves anything happening to his corpse. And therefore, I have no idea whether it involves an empty tomb. And for me, that doesn't matter because the central meaning of the Easter experience of the resurrection of Jesus is that his followers continue to experience him as a living reality, a living presence after his death. So I would have no problem whatsoever with archaeologists finding the corpse of Jesus. For me, that would not be a discrediting of the Christian faith or of the Christian tradition. N.T. Wright insists that his friend Marcus Borg is a Christian and that his ideas are just a little muddled. By the way, that's a British word, sorry. You can just add that to your dictionary, your lexicon. Muddled. He's a little confused, in other words. Brethren, that's not just a little confusion. The Apostle Paul says that if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised in 1 Corinthians 15. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins, he says. And then he says, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Paul says you take the resurrection, the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
everything vanishes. And you end up with a Messiah who is a liar and a deceiver. Brethren, do not be deceived. Just as the Apostle Paul pronounced an anathema upon those who had taken the gospel, the simple and pure message of the gospel, and they corrupted it, anathematizing that, so too should we whenever men come to the scriptures and corrupt the simple and beautiful and pure message of holy writ. When academicians see themselves as those who preside over the authority of the scriptures, they often mutilate God's word, even blaspheming the name of Christ as they do, and doing so without any sense of concern whatsoever. By the way, the book that I wrote, Critiquing N.T. Wright, I dedicated it to Miss Betty. You say to yourself, who's Miss Betty? Miss Betty was just a very sweet, simple child of God, an elderly saint that I had the privilege, we had the privilege of ministering to back in North Carolina. And she, also, she would often say to me, Pastor, I'm no theologian. I'm no theologian. I would oftentimes say to her, Miss Betty, you're an excellent theologian. And one time after I explained to her the book that I was writing, I said to to her, you know what, you're a better theologian than Marcus Borg and N.T. Wright put together. Why? Because she had this simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. It's not complicated. What God has revealed in his word we must embrace in faith and never corrupt it. By the way, that's why I dedicated the book to her. Brethren, we have this great privilege of growing in our devotion to Christ, who's the bridegroom of the church. We have this great privilege of growing in the simplicity and purity of devotion to him. We have only one bridegroom to whom we are to be devoted. And may this time of the Lord's table increase that devotion to him. May it increase our love for him. And even as we prepare for this table, as we often do, let's take some time together, brethren, to pray privately, silently, to confess any matters of sin that we need to confess before the Lord. Our desire this morning is to honor him as we approach him in this table. And so let me ask the ushers now to come forward.